0: Good morning, everyone. We will uh, get started with our lesson this morning on justification and adoption. If you haven't gotten a handout, they are in the back there uh, so you can follow along. Hopefully, it's not quite as packed as last week, but uh, we'll see what we can do. Uh, Before we get started, let us uh, go to Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the great gift of salvation that you've given us and and, uh, the word that you've given us to reveal to us your salvation. Would you open your word to us so we can understand and have a greater appreciation for the redemption that we have in your Son? We ask this in his name. Amen. So first, we're going to talk about justification. And to give a really simple definition of justification, we have this Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 33, that is what uh, WSC stands for, in case you didn't know. One of our elders wasn't sure what WSC stood for. Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, 33, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So we're going to unpack that definition alongside uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 11. Um, And so first, the nature of justification. The nature of justification is declarative and definitive. It is a legal declaration and it is definitive. So a legal declaration means that God changes our legal status when he justifies us but he does not change our hearts when he justifies us. In other words, he doesn't make us into righteous people. He gives us the verdict of a righteous person. Uh, He declares he doesn't transform. And we can see this in Westminster Confession, chapter 11, section one, which says not by, so God justifies us not by infusing righteousness into us, which would be moral transformation, not by infusing righteousness but by pardoning our sins and by accounting and accepting us as righteous, not for anything wrought in us or done by us, but for Christ's sake alone. And so we see it's not um, making us righteous people, it's not putting righteousness inside of us, it's by declaring us, and, it, and it's a twofold declaration. The first one is negative, it's pardon of sins, and the second one is positive. It's being accepted as righteous. So negatively, our sins are forgiven. Our guilt is taken away. Um, it's like our 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 slate is cleaned. We have a blank slate, but we aren't left with a blank slate that needs to be filled with righteousness. Instead, uh, God positively gives us a slate full of righteous and perfect obedience. And so we're not just declared not guilty, we're declared perfectly, positively righteous. And it's not just we're declared pretty good people as if we obeyed, you know, some laws here, not some laws there. We are declared righteous as if we fulfilled the whole law, as if we brought it to its end. He gives us the reward uh, of perfect obedience And so, in other words, our guilt is taken away and replaced with Christ's reward. And so, that's a declaration. It's twofold. It's a declaration of forgiveness of sins and accepting as as being righteous. And then, second, it's definitive. And by definitive, we mean it is final, it's irrevocable, once for all. Um, It can't be undone. Because justification is a legal declaration of righteousness, it cannot be lost or changed. The verdict uh, of righteousness and uh, innocence that we've been given won't be exchanged for a guilty verdict at any point. And we can see this in Romans 5.1, uh, where it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But then a few verses later, we see even more in uh, Romans 5.9, Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And so, if you've been justified, you not only have present peace with God, you have assurance that you'll be saved in the final judgment. You won't be condemned in the day of judgment. That's what we see in Romans 5.9, we'll be saved from the wrath of God, And so, it's definitive. It can't change. It won't be taken away later. We can't fall away. We can't uh, do something that's really bad that would uh, tarnish our justification. If you're justified, you're justified once and for all. And so, there's no place for a future or final justification if it is forensic and definitive, if it's legal, if it's a legal declaration and if it's definitive, then there's no room for final or future justification. And that means you also can't lose your salvation or justification. And this is where the reformed doctrine of justification is set apart from others because uh, the Roman Catholic Church holds to a final justification. Uh, Armenian denominations, like Wesleyanism, holds to a kind of final justification. Uh, N.T. Wright and other new perspective on Paul people or federal vision scholars say that we're presently justified by faith and will be future justified by one's life, one's works. And then Lutherans also believe that a justified person can lose his justification. And so this is something that makes the Reformed doctrine of justification unique, that it's it's definitive. It can't be lost or changed. So that's the nature, decla- uh, declarative and definitive, that's the nature, and now the ground of justification or the basis. What is it founded upon? And the answer is Christ's active and passive obedience. And these two types of obedience correspond to the twofold declaration that we saw, the forgiveness and then the being accepted as righteous. We see in uh, Westminster Confession 11, Section 1, uh, God justifies us for Christ's sake alone by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them. So obedience refers to active obedience and satisfaction refers to passive obedience. Christ's passive obedience um, corresponds to our pardon of sin. It corresponds to taking away our guilt, forgiving our sins, and that word passive doesn't mean that Jesus didn't do anything. It wasn't meaning, you know, he was passive as in he just sat back and did nothing. The uh, The root of this word passive is a Latin word that means suffer, and so Christ's passive obedience is his suffering obedience. Uh, his enduring, the penalty, punishment, curse of disobedience, even though he was obedient. So it's Christ's suffering obedience, his his, uh, being tortured and crucified on the cross especially. But we shouldn't too neatly distinguish between active obedience and passive obedience in terms of like the, the periods of Jesus's life. Some people will say, Uh, Jesus' act of obedience was up until the cross, and then his passive obedience was on the cross. But that's too neat, and that's not quite what we mean. Um, Instead, we mean that Jesus' whole life was characterized by both of these things. Even his becoming incarnate was an act of passive obedience. It was an act of suffering, taking on the form of a servant, um, as we see in uh, Philippians 2, 6-8. Becoming incarnate was a form of suffering obedience for Christ. And so he was suffering his entire life, and he was even actively obedient as he was suffering on the cross. So those two things characterize his entire life. Uh, we see Christ's act of obedience on full display in Isaiah 53. That's really the chapter where we see it most. Um, he was stricken, smitten, cursed by God. Um, also, uh, Galatians 3.13 says Christ became a curse for us. That's part of his... Passive obedience uh, Hebrews 10:5 through10 um, is commenting on a psalm that I can't think of off the top of my head, but in doing so, it explains that Jesus' offering up of his body was an act of obedience. Um, it was an act of his obeying God's will. And so we can see that um, even his suffering was an act of obeying, of obeying God, from Hebrews 10. Uh, 1 Peter 2.24, Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's a very good, succinct definition of Christ's passive obedience. And then again, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so when we're talking about passive obedience, we're saying that our sins are forgiven because Christ bore them on the cross, because he suffered. He took our penalty, our punishment, our curse. He paid our debt. He satisfied God's justice all on our behalf and in our place. And so that earns our forgiveness of sins. And that's the first ground of our justification. And the second is his active obedience. Christ's active obedience corresponds to Uh, the second declaration of justification, meaning Christ's act of obedience grants us the sentence and reward of perfect righteousness and achieves our being accepted as righteous. So, act of obedience is Christ's fulfilling of the whole law, his fulfilling of the law's command to love God and neighbor perfectly. And it's not that just he obeyed standalone laws, like he, you know Jesus didn't murder, so he was actively obedient, but even more, he fulfilled the whole law. He fulfilled the purpose of the law. He took it to its end. We see in the original state that humans were created, which was the covenant of works, we see that God didn't simply give humans the task of staying sinless. It's not that Adam could have just sat back on the couch, did nothing, as long as he didn't eat the fruit of the tree of the garden, uh, the fruit of the of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't just staying sinless. God gave Adam a vocation to fill. He had a command that he had to actively and positively accomplish. Adam had to offer perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience to God. And it's not just don't eat the forbidden fruit, but also be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the creatures. This was part of Adam's vocation. He had to fulfill this. And so in our salvation, if God simply declared us not guilty, if he simply forgave our sins, then we would still need to earn our reward. We would still need to, do, we would still need to fulfill this vocation that he gave to humanity in the garden. We would still need to obey God perfectly and actively to be accepted as righteous in His sight and to receive the reward of righteousness. But we know that no one can be justified by works of the law because we have have a sinful and fallen nature. We have original sin. We're unable to please God by our own power. And so this is why God needed to reveal a way to be declared righteous apart from the law, as in Romans 3.21 a righteousness which is received through faith in Christ. And so we are not obligated to fulfill Adam's vocation. It's not our job to earn our own righteousness like it was Adam's job. Instead, this is the context of Christ's obedience in his role as last Adam. He has done this for us. He's fulfilled Adam's vocation on our behalf. In his passive obedience, his suffering obedience, Jesus cleans up the mess made by the first Adam. And in his active obedience, he did what the first Adam failed to do. This is Christ's obedience. And we see his active obedience in 1 Corinthians one thirty, where Paul says, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us righteousness. And we see how he became to us righteousness in that he was born under the law in Galatians 4:4. 4, 4. Again, he was the second or last Adam in Romans 5:16 to 19. He was in Adam's place, given a vocation to fulfill. We see in Romans 5:15 to 16 that justification comes through a gift. Then in the next verse, verse 17, this is a gift of righteousness. In the next verse, verse 18, it's a right, a gift of righteousness that is a righteous act of Christ. And then in verse 19, it's a righteous act of Christ that is specifically an act of obedience. And so this is how we become righteous. We become righteous through Christ's act of righteous obedience to God, fulfilling Adam's vocation, doing what he and us have failed to do. And so now the, the righteousness of justification, it is an imputed alien righteousness. The righteousness we receive is not our own. It's Christ's righteousness. That means it's alien. It's outside of ourselves. And so how, do, how does it become ours? How does this righteousness come to us? We read in 2 Corinthians 5.21 again, the righteous one became sin to make the sinful ones righteous. But how do we become righteous? How do we get Christ's righteousness? We read, especially in Romans chapter four, that this transfer occurs through imputation. Christ takes our sin and gives us his righteousness through imputation. This is what Westminster Confession 11.1 says, that we're justified by, or God justifies us by imputing the, the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto us, by imputing it. And this word impute is a legal or financial term that means to count something against someone or to credit something in someone's favor. And so to, to say that Christ's righteousness is, is imputed to us, it's as if Christ earned an immeasurable sum of money and we had an immeasurable debt and our debt is counted to Christ and his riches are counted to us. We see in Romans four, five to 11, especially in verse six, God imputes righteousness apart from works. This word is often translated as count in in the ESV. So, God counts righteousness apart from works. This is how we receive righteousness. God counts it to us. But how do we receive this counting? How do we receive this imputation of righteousness? The answer is the instrument of justification, which is faith. We receive our We receive the righteousness of Christ through faith. Again, Westminster Confession eleven one. By imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. And so, as we mentioned last week, faith is the instrument through which we receive justification. It is an open hand that receives the gift of righteousness. This is what we see in Romans 3:24 to 25. We are justified by his grace as a gift to be received by faith. And so we are justified by faith. We receive Christ's righteousness, the imputation of his perfect obedience by believing in him. And so we're not justified by works as as, as it clearly says in Romans 3:28, Galatians 2:16. We're not justified by works either now or in the final judgment, nor nor are we justified before we have faith. If justification is by faith, then it's not by works, and justification cannot become before faith. And I'll explain that a little bit more later on. And finally, in terms of the definition of justification, its context in the order of salvation. Where does, justif- where does justification come in the order? And like, like I've been trying to stress uh, so far, the relationship in the order of salvation is that the later blessings are founded on the earlier blessings. And so justification is founded upon effectual calling and faith, and all of the subsequent blessings are founded upon justification. And there's, there's a particular relationship between the immediately preceding and immediately following blessing. And so justification is especially founded upon faith because faith is the instrument of justification. It's how you receive it. And adoption is especially founded upon justification. And we'll get to that later on as well. And so you can see this uh, these verses that kind of show that the preceding blessings uh, Justification is founded upon those, and then the, the following ones are founded upon justification. So that's the order of salvation and justification's place in it. Now let's talk about some different views and show why we have to deny them, we have to reject them. Rome has a very different view of justification. This was really the, the greatest cause of the Reformation, Rome views justification as partly forensic and partly formative. And that means it's partly a legal declaration of forgiveness, but it's also partly becoming righteous, uh, being transformed into righteous. In other words, initial justification, which happens in baptism, gives you a blank slate, meaning original sins as well as the sins you have committed up to that point are forgiven. But you must increase in justification you must be transformed into a righteous person in other words you need to fill your blank slate with good works to become righteous and so they deny imputed righteousness they deny christ's act of obedience being um, imputed to us for our justification Um, and they deny that justification is by faith alone they say it's by faith but also by works um, and righteousness is not imputed, it's infused, it's, it's put into us. We become righteous rather than being counted as righteous. And so I think it's really important for us to know what Rome says about us as Protestants because sometimes they seem friendly, sometimes they try to act like, you know, oh, we're all good, we're, we can be friends. Um, there, there have even been a lot of movements in recent times uh, to kind of reconcile with Rome. There's been a, a movement, uh, the joint declaration on justification between Lutherans and Roman Catholics. And I think it's really important to see what Rome officially says about us. So I'm going to read some quotations from the Council of Trent. Council uh, was in response to the Reformation. It's It was... Um, maybe a generation or two after the Reformation had started. And it was Rome's response um, in trying to quell what had happened in the Protestant Reformation. So session six, canon nine of the Council of Trent, and this is official Roman Catholic doctrine. They have never uh, rescinded this statement. They've never changed what they believe here. This is still standing. Um, It has confessional status, you could say. Session 6, canon 9. If anyone says that by faith alone the impious is justified in such a way as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. And that means cursed, even damned. And so they're saying, if you believe that you're justified by faith alone then you are cursed. They also say in canon 11 if anyone says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the just of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins so that's the two-fold ground of justification that i already said right Christ's active and passive obedience if anyone says you're justified by that alone to the exclusion of the grace and the charity which is poured forth in the, in their hearts by the Holy Ghost and is inherent in them, or even that grace whereby we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be anathema. So they're saying, if you believe that you're justified by a declaration, by a declaration of Christ's passive and active obedience being imputed to you, and by that alone, not adding any inner transformation of your heart by the Holy Spirit, then you are cursed. And of course, that's what I've just explained, that we believe about justification. And so the key differences between our doctrine of justification in Rome's is that they say justification is a process. It's not definitive. It's not once and for all. They say it's by faith and works, not by faith alone. They say righteousness is infused, not imputed. And they say justification could be lost, And so a quick response. They say that justification is partly transformative. It's not just a declaration of being just. It's partly transformative. Um, but in in the Bible, the biblical term for justify, in the New Testament, it's dikaya'o. In the Old Testament, it's sadak. Uh, these words don't mean to make somebody into a righteous person. They mean to declare somebody as righteous in a judicial setting, not in a setting of transformation, in a setting of uh, of a judge passing judgment on a person. We can see this in Exodus 23, 7. God is speaking in, in, in the context of a court, in the context of, of a judicial sentence, and he says, I will not justify the guilty. If Rome's definition made sense, then the guilty are the only person that you could justify. You would only make somebody into righteous who isn't already righteous, right? So if it's transformation, you can't transform somebody into righteous unless they're not righteous. But God says, I will not justify the guilty. This is a legal declaration. He will not acquit the guilty is how many uh, translations put it. Uh, we also see Proverbs 17, 15, the one who justifies the guilty and declares guilty the just, they are both an abomination to the Lord. And then Deuteronomy 25, 1, if there is a dispute between men and they come forward for judgment and the judges judge them, then they shall justify the just and declare guilty the guilty. It's not the task of judges to transform a person, to give somebody a moral reformation into being a more righteous person. It's the judge's task to declare reality, to say you are just or you are unjust, you are guilty. And it's according to works, it's according to reality, it's according to what the people have done. This is how scripture uses these words. This is the case in the New Testament as well. Luke seven twenty nine, they justified God. That can't have a transformative meaning. It can't mean they made God into a just person. It's a declaration. They recognized God's justice. They declared him to be just. Romans 3:19 to 20. This is a context under the law. That's what Paul says, and he's talking about justification. So it's a legal context and meaning. And then Romans 5:16, Paul, uh, contrasts justification and condemnation. He doesn't contrast justification and being made wicked. Which, which would be the opposite of Rome's justification. He contrasts justification and condemnation, two different uh, sentences or declarations. And so the word justify means a legal declaration, not a righteous transformation. It cannot be changed or lost. Uh, God will not declare guilty. Uh, sorry, God will not declare the righteous guilty. But this is what he does in the gospel. We read in Romans 4, 5, God justifies the ungodly. And so he justifies us not because of our works, because we are ungodly. He justifies us because of Christ's work, which is imputed to us. And so that's a quick response to Rome. Uh, A quick word on final justification. I've mentioned this already in in this series, but various groups hold to some kind of final or future justification. I'm thinking of, of course, the Roman Catholic Church, um, various Armenian denominations, the New Perspective on Paul, Federal Vision. Very familiar names teach this, I'm thinking N.T. Wright, Doug Wilson, even John Piper. In different ways, these authors teach that we are justified presently by faith alone, but in the future will be justified by faith and works. And the final judgment will be justified by works in some way. And so a quick response to this. If anyone says that we need a second justification for any reason, they have determined that the first justification wasn't enough. If anyone makes our obedience contribute to our righteous standing before God in any way, they have determined that Christ's obedience wasn't enough. A second justification undermines the nature of justification as a legal declaration and as definitive. If it's both of those things, then we can't have a second justification. If God declares your sins as forgiven and accepts you as righteous on the basis of Christ's obedience and suffering, then you cannot be any more justified than you already are nor can you lose your justification. And so a twofold justification at least opens the possibility, and in many cases the reality, that these teachers teach that justification can be increased or lost. So at the final judgment, we won't be justified again, but the verdict that we received in our current justification will be given to us. The reward of, our, of, of Christ's righteousness that has been counted to us now will be given to us then. We won't be given another verdict, the same verdict will be given to us, but we'll be, it will be open in public. This is what we see in Westminster larger catechism, question 90. It doesn't say at the final judgment, we will be finally justified. This is what it says, at the day of judgment, the righteous shall be set on Christ's right hand and there openly acknowledged and acquitted. And so that's the language we ought to use, openly acknowledged and acquitted. Some reformed theologians, just use the term final justification to refer to this open acquittal, but this should be avoided because it it sounds too similar to the other much worse uses of final justification. So we should distinguish justification from the final judgment. We're justified now, and in the final judgment, we will be openly acknowledged and acquitted. Now a quick uh, response to something that's called eternal justification or sometimes active and passive justification. You can see this in, in Louis Birkhoff or Hermann Bavink. They basically say that there's some kind of justification that we have before we're justified by faith. Uh, sometimes they say that we're justified, you know, in eternity in our election in Christ and others that we're justified as Christ was obeying for us and dying for us, or or even rising from the dead. Uh, So, should we say that we're justified in any way before we're justified by faith alone? I would say no. Scripture clearly says that we're justified by faith, Romans 3.28. We believe in order to be justified, Galatians 2.16. Justification is received by faith, Romans 3.25. So we shouldn't speak of being justified before we have faith, because faith is what receives justification. God decrees our justification in eternity. Christ purchased it in his earthly ministry, but we receive it when we believe. And so that is what we're gonna cover on justification. We have to cover adoption and then a quick application. So I'm gonna just move right, right along to adoption. First, defining adoption. What is adoption? Westminster Confession 34. Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and receive a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. I, I just realized I got that wrong. It's it's have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Not a big deal, but... So what, what does this definition mean? Uh, first, we see that this is a legal declaration. It's nature. It's a legal declaration, just like justification. How do I know this? Well, in the Westminster Standards, the legal aspects of salvation are called acts, and the transformative aspects of salvation are called works. So you'll read through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and you'll see that uh, effectual calling is a work of God, and sanctification is a work of God, but adoption and justification are acts of God. Uh, And and it's not really the definition of those words that is why they did that. It's just to keep them distinct and separate. Um, And so so we see that adoption is an act of God. It's something that God legally declares uh, regarding us. He legally declares us to be his children with all the rights and privileges of the sons of God. And the right and privilege of adoption is especially an inheritance, inheriting eternal life we're not adopted just as children but as children with an inheritance we're adopted as heirs in other words um, i'm going to pull up romans 8:15 to 17 really fast cuz this is a wonderful section describing our adoption romans 8:15 to 17 for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so if we are adopted as children, we have the spirit of adoption, then we are heirs. Next, who is adopted? Those who believe are adopted. Uh, John 1, 12, to all who did receive him, that is Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In other words, those who believe are adopted as children of God. But we aren't just adopted as children, but specifically as sons. We saw this in Romans 8, we, we have the spirit of adoption as sons. Uh, we see this in Galatians 3.26. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Galatians 3.26. And at first this sounds like it's excluding women, right? It's just saying sons. But it's not to the exclusion of women. It's to their full inclusion. The, the word in Galatians 3.26 and Romans 8 is not a generic word for children um, like it was in John 1. That's the generic word for children. But in these verses, Galatians 3.26, it's the specifically male term used for son, huios. Um, And it doesn't exclude women. Rather, adoption as a son had a special legal standing in the Roman culture at, in Paul's time. A son was also an heir, an adopted son. Usually, the only reason why you adopted a son was to adopt an heir. Uh And so, I mean, this is kind of an assumption, but more than likely, no one ever adopted a daughter in the Roman uh, Empire in the time of the New Testament. They had a pretty low value of women. But in the New Testament, we see in Galatians 3.26, even women who believe are welcomed into the number of the sons of God. Not that they stop being women, they start being men or something like that. Rather, they're adopted as heirs of God, having the same status as an adopted son would have in Roman culture. We can see this especially because, uh, because uh, Galatians 3.28, just two verses after we read that you are all sons, Galatians 3.28 says there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so we are all sons. We are all heirs um, of God. Last, the benefits of adoption. And this is taken from uh, Westminster Confession Uh, I guess chapter 12. The benefits of adoption. We have God's name upon us, and if you're curious at tracing that kind of biblical theological thread that I wove there in the parentheses, it's pretty interesting. Um, We have God's name upon us. We receive the spirit of adoption, as we read in Romans 8.15. We are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. Again, Romans 8.15. In other words, we're able to pray to God as our Father. It's not something that everybody can do. That's only something that People who are adopted by God can do. We can call Him Father. We are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by God as a Father. In other words, we have God's fatherly care and providence in our lives. We are never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption. Uh, we see that in Ephesians 1:13 and 14, and then 4:30. Uh, if the Spirit is the Spirit of adoption, and we are sealed by the Spirit, then if we're adopted, we're sealed to the day of redemption. And that means we will inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Romans 8, 17 and 1 Peter 1, 3. We inherit the promises as heirs if we are adopted. And the last thing I'll cover on adoption uh, is that some theologians, you know, I I haven't spent a lot of time on adoption compared to justification uh, and that's partly because a lot of theologians just don't even cover adoption as a distinct blessing. They consider it part of justification. Um, you know, Burkhoff, Bavink, Turton, Hodge, this is just part of justification. God adopts us when he justifies us. But the Westminster Standards and John Murray, um, and I'm following John Murray's book mainly, Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied, uh, they present adoption as a distinct blessing that flows out of justification. And so should we treat adoption as distinct? Should it be treated as part of justification? I obviously think we should agree with the Westminster Standards. It is best to treat them as distinct um, because the concepts are distinct. A person can be justified without being adopted. A person can be adopted without being justified, hypothetically. A judge who declares someone just doesn't then go on to adopt them. That just doesn't make sense. But God not only declares us just, he adopts us as children and heirs. And so he goes farther than just, ad- uh, than just uh, declaring us righteous. Uh, he, wouldn't, he didn't have to adopt us by declaring us righteous, but rather God wanted to adopt us. And so he had to declare us righteous to adopt us. We see that adoption flows from and is founded upon justification. Galatians 4, 4 to 5, we read that Christ redeemed us with the purpose of giving us adoption. He redeemed us to give us adoption. Titus 3, 7 says the same thing. The purpose of our being justified was to make us heirs. And so we need just, justification to be adopted because one who is condemned under God's law cannot be an heir of God. And so we must be cleared of guilt to be adopted by God. We're guilty in God's eyes. And so we can't be adopted by God as long as we're guilty in his eyes. And this is the order of salvation context. Adoption is founded upon all preceding blessings, especially justification, and all following blessings are founded upon adoption. And you can see that in in the the note that I have there. And so a quick word on application, now that we've covered justification and adoption. At this point in our study, we're able to look back on what we've learned so far and, and ask what it means for us practically uh, that this is the order of salvation. The order of salvation began with effectual calling where uh, God's spirit calls us to believe in Jesus and actually makes us willing and able to believe in Jesus. And so faith is a gift, but faith is also an open hand that accepts the gift of Christ's righteousness. We aren't justified by works, but by the absence of works, by resting and receiving the work of another. And by resting and receiving the work of Christ, we become sons of God and heirs of eternal life. And so, salvation is God's work through and through as a gift that we simply receive by faith. And so, how should we respond to that gift? My professor, Michael Horton, says that doctrine leads to doxology and discipleship. Doctrine leads to doxology and discipleship. In other words, If you have learned how great a gift of salvation you have and how generous and loving God is to save you by grace alone through faith alone, you should first of all fall to your knees and worship Him. That's doxology. That's the posture we must return to every day in light of our gift of salvation. And second, we should walk as disciples of Christ, offering ourselves as living sacrifices to God in light of His great mercy, obeying His law, doing what is pleasing to him, and then teaching others what we have learned about God's great salvation, and that's discipleship. And so doxology leads to, or rather doctrine leads to doxology and discipleship. And that is absolutely the case when we're learning about the order of salvation. Uh, maybe we have time for one or two questions. If anybody has any questions about justification, adoption, or even that application, yeah. We have a mic coming.
1: Interestingly enough, I'm, I'm teaching on this very subject in my community group tonight. We're going through the Heidelberg. Oh, awesome. But one of the interesting things about the Heidelberg it, in question 61, it says it's not your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. Mm. And uh, so like Kevin DeYoung says, it's like you have to have faith when you're crossing over a frozen lake, but it's not your faith that gets you across it's the object of your faith 12 inches of frozen ice so that i thought that was uh, a pretty good addition to this concept of justification and also the that concept of the validation of justification is our works kind of like via james 2 and all that so it's for those who are meditating on this am i well i don't know look look at your works and but on the other hand, you know, people who might be troubled over the quality or the faith—it's your faith. In, in, you need to have faith in the object, not faith in your faith. That's kind of what that title kind of was getting to.
0: Right. Yeah. I'd Having raised Roman Catholic, I so treasure the fact that I have justification in christ because growing up i spent half the time wondering was i in venial sin or mortal sin Hmm. because if i died with a mortal sin i was going to hell and the only way to put that in restoration is to go to confession to the priest and so this constant fear of you know did i just do something that was venial or mortal
1: and that's the great fault of the catholic viewpoint so thank the lord for the just the ultimate in his justification so
0: Thanks. We'll take these two more, and then we'll probably have to wrap up.
1: This came up in uh, in uh, family devotions, but we were wondering if if um, our salvation is of an eternal nature, why wasn't the exchange on on Christ an eternal punishment?
0: That's a good question. Um, I, don't really, I don't really know how to answer that exactly. I guess what I will say is that, um, I think actually, I think the Heidelberg Catechism and, and the Westminster Larger Catechism explore this question of why was it necessary for Christ to be human, and why was it necessary for Christ to be divine? Uh-huh. I think maybe the, the latter one maybe answers your question in that, his death, because he was truly God, um, was of infinite and, and eternal value, I suppose. And his suffering, um, he in his suffering, he didn't just die on the cross. It wasn't just physical suffering, but it was, it was also spiritual suffering. Uh-huh. Um, it was also taking on the whole wrath of God. And so it didn't last for an eternal period of time, but he, he is the eternal God, right? And so he didn't suffer Per se, as the eternal God, because He suffered in His humanity, but it had that value because He was um, suffering as the God-Man. Does that maybe help a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I that's kind
1: of what I tried to say. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> in it's, the family devotions, but I.
0: It's a it's a good question. Difficult question. Was there another one over? Yeah.
1: Horton once said good theologians make good distinctions can you talk about the distinctions between justification and sanctification and how if you get that wrong that's how you fall into Rome or you fall into the other side of
0: Right. Well, yeah, we'll definitely talk about that next week. That's probably gonna be one of the major things I talk about when we talk about sanctification next week. Um, But just a preview, I guess. Um, Really, the big insight from the Reformation was distinguishing justification and sanctification. That didn't really happen before um, the Reformation. And so uh, distinguishing our being transformed into a righteous person uh, from our being declared as righteous before God has huge implications uh, for our experience, of Christianity, our experience of salvation, our assurance of salvation. um, If you think that in any way your righteousness before God is founded upon your own works, um, it's going to cause a lot of anxiety, a lot of lack of assurance. You will die not knowing for sure whether you are going to heaven or not. But if your justification, if your righteous standing before God is founded upon Christ's perfect obedience, then you can have full assurance that when you die, you're you're going to be with your Lord. Um, We'll talk about that more next week, but that's a preview, I guess. So yeah, we'll stop it there. Thank you guys.